Well, tonight we're going to look at a biblical story that isn't directly related to the Lord's Supper. It isn't even a foreshadow of the Lord's Supper like, say, the Passover meal is in the book of Exodus. But it's a story, nonetheless, of undeserved mercy, even extravagant grace. Extravagant extravagant grace on account of someone else, on account of covenant. We're going to see it's a story of eating and acceptance. And so it is a story after reading it or studying it from which we can't help but think of the Lord's Supper. It's a story also which springs from where we left off in our study of 1 Samuel this past Sunday. So this past Sunday, we looked at 1 Samuel 23 and 24, and in chapter 24, they are just outside the cave, David confronted Saul, and he confronted Saul with that powerful demonstration of his mercy, that he had a corner of Saul's kingly robe from which David had just, he just cut off that piece of fabric, now showing it to Saul. He preaches to Saul, really. And Saul finally broke. At least for the moment, Saul finally broke. He wept at the end of 1 Samuel 24. He acknowledged David's right to the throne. He he acknowledged God's blessing on David and on his future throne. He asked, though, if David, once king, would show mercy to Saul's offspring. Now, a little later tonight, We'll see how that played out in the next couple of decades. We'll go into 2 Samuel. But first, do this. Turn with me to 1 Samuel, and let's back up and remember that Saul's request to David in 1 Samuel 24 was one that had already been made by Saul's son, Jonathan. It was one request that David had already covenanted to. He swore to with Jonathan. In fact, in 1 Samuel, there are a total of five places that refer to a covenant firmly, repeatedly established. The first is in 1 Samuel 18. So turn there if you would. 1 Samuel 18. This is the first of the covenants made between Jonathan and David. Starting in verse 3, we read... Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, the the princely robe that was on him, and he gave it to David along with his armor and his sword and his bow and his belt. It wasn't just a nice gesture. It wasn't just a, a lavish gift. It was a symbol Jonathan was relinquishing his right to the throne and acknowledging David as the rightful heir because of God's promises and also because of Saul's downward spiral. There's the first of the covenants. Now look at 1 Samuel 20. 1 Samuel 20, and now in verse 14, here's what Jonathan says to David. He says, Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. Don't cut off my family, those who come after me. 
when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. The narrator says, And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. He's siding with David, not David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear, that's covenant language, again, by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Same chapter, now another covenant. Verse 42, these are all really the same covenant, they're just repeated. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn covenant language, both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring, that's important, and your offspring forever. Now chapter 23, chapter 23 and verse 17. And here Jonathan says, You shall be king over Israel. And I shall be next to you, your right-hand man. I will support you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And again, the narrator says, And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And now we come to Saul's request of David that's so similar and so, so important. Now, chapter 24, this is where we left off on Sunday. Saul said to David in verse 20 of chapter 24, Now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, covenant language, therefore by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. David's mercy and kindness to Saul is staggering. Staggering in chapter 24 as a whole. He doesn't kill him when he could have. He doesn't kill him when, humanly speaking, he had every right to. Politically speaking, he had every right to, we could say. But then on top of it, he fulfills this request. And of course, yes, he's already, he's already answered to Jonathan four times before. But now to Saul directly, he says... Yes, I swear, I will not cut off your line, those who are after you. I won't go after them. I won't wipe out your house or your family, your lineage. We get a surprise ending, though, to 1 Samuel. The surprise ending is that Jonathan dies. Remember, Jonathan and David were best of friends, and Jonathan said, I will be next to you in your kingdom when you serve as king. You get to the end of 1 Samuel, and Jonathan, with Saul dies. But a foreshadow soon follows. Now look at 2 Samuel chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4 gives us a a foreshadow of what's to come. Remember the offspring language? Don't cut off my household. Don't cut off my offspring. Don't destroy my name forever. And David said he wouldn't. 2 Samuel 4, 4, just a passing verse here. It seems parenthetical. It doesn't really flow, except we know this is a tip of the hand by the writer to show us something of what's to come. Verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. 
And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Fast forward through chapter 8 of 2 Samuel. And you see one of the bloodiest chapters recorded in this story, this narrative. It's David destroying his enemies. Note that, David destroying his enemies. And then chapter 9 begins, and we see a desire for David to fulfill covenant mercies. David has a desire to fulfill those covenant mercies to Saul's house. Look at 2 Samuel 9, now our passage to focus on in verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for all for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Zebah, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Zebah? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Now, David has no external obligations to fulfill those covenants that he made with Jonathan and with Saul. You think about it. Who heard those interactions back in the earlier chapters of 1 Samuel? Who heard those discussions between Jonathan and David when they covenanted with each other and David promised to do his household, his offspring good? No one heard. They seemed to be very private conversations. So it was with King Saul in chapter 24. It seems to be a very private conversation. No one heard of these covenants. Likely no one knew of them. Maybe some did. But who's around now in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, perhaps two decades later after some of those covenant conversations were made in 1 Samuel, who's around to even to even know or talk about it. And even so, who would challenge the king on this point if they knew of these covenant conversations and were still around? Surely not anyone in Saul's household. Not anyone of Saul's offspring. Not this Mephibosheth. He would not be one to challenge the king and insist on blessing. Nevertheless, we see a desire to fulfill those covenant mercies in David. And it's a desire that springs from his own heart and his own, his own truthfulness, his, his own veracity. Thirdly, though, there's an unworthy and unexpecting recipient. We know who it is. We already got the foreshadow, right? The guy with the funny name, Mephibosheth. He's an unworthy and unexpecting recipient. Look at the second half of verse 3 and following. Zebah said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Zebah said to the king, He's in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of uh, Maker, and the son of uh, Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. 
And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. An unworthy and unexpecting recipient. Almost every time that Mephibosheth is mentioned, it's mentioned that he's lame. He's crippled. From the very first mention in chapter 4 to the last verse, which we'll read in a bit, in chapter 9, it says he's crippled, he's lame. We're also told in verse 4 that he lived in the house of maker. In other words, he lives with people. He's dependent. He's lame in both feet. The guy needs carrying. He can't walk. He can't work. He's dependent on those around him. We're not sure who. His name, Mephibosheth, means something related to shame. Uh, scholars aren't really clear what the Hebrew means in Mephibosheth, but the, word, the Hebrew word for shame is in the middle of it somewhere, and so it has something to do with shame. And no doubt that relates in part to his poverty, his disability, his dependence on others, but maybe even more reason for shame being tied to his name is his lineage. Imagine having the last name Hitler after World War II. That'd be unfortunate, wouldn't it? Imagine living in Iraq these days with the name Hussein. That'd be tough, even though it is a common name. We sometimes hear of a family of a notorious killer and they changed their last name. You, you, you can't live in the same town as where Ted Bundy did his, his murders and, and still go by the name Bundy. You've got to change it. Well, that's something of what Mephibosheth had to feel in a post-Saul Judah. He also lives in the town of Lodabar, we're told. Lodabar? It literally means no word. No word. Thing, nothing, nowhere. He lives in Nowhereville. It's one of those small towns that doesn't have a streetlight, you know? He lives nowhere. That shows his lowliness. But it might also suggest that he'd been laying low. It maybe suggests that he's been hiding out for fear of David. You see, behind all this is a background we have to understand we have to understand what it meant in those days, in that culture, when someone else had a legitimate claim to the throne. One commentator wrote like this about it. When a new regime or dynasty came to power, the name of the game was purge. Purge the old. You've seen this in movies, right? A sister kills another who could be a rival for the throne. You read about it in books of yesteryear. It's even in the Bible. A few times in First and Second Kings, uh, you've got one king who knows that there are others who could claim the throne or eventually ascend the throne, and he just wipes anyone out that falls into that category. So now we can understand why Mephibosheth may have been laying low in Nowheresville. And now we can understand why Mephibosheth fell on his face before David. No doubt trembling. We can feel something of the drama of David's next word after Mephibosheth fell on his face before David. David just, there's an exclamation mark. It's, it's Mephibosheth. You could just feel the, the weight of that if you were Mephibosheth. He must have thought that David's next sentence would be a sentence of death. That's what 
That's what any and every king did in those days. But instead, verse 7, David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. So now we come to a fourth scene here, fourth part of the story. It's extravagant mercy shown. He says, do not fear, even though you'd have every human reason to be afraid. I will show kindness to you, not because you've deserved it, not because you're worthy of it, certainly not because you have something to offer me, but for the sake of your father, Jonathan, because of someone else's worth, someone else's covenant. You will eat at my table always, the table in in eating together, a sign of fellowship and acceptance. The table, in the king's table specifically, would be a place where ranking officials and other dignitaries would eat. And of course, the family too. And hence, it says in verse 11, he ate at the king's table, what's it say at the end? Like one of the king's sons. An adoption of sorts. An adult adoption has taken place. Again, totally undeserved apart from covenant mercies. In fact, Mephibosheth himself confesses as much in verse 8. It says he paid homage after David showed mercy like this. And and he said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Not just dead man, but dead dog. But David responds by going even further with extravagant mercy. So let's read on in verse 9. Then the king called Zabah, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Zabah had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Zabah said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Zabah's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always, always at the king's table. Just let's add this up while we're at it. Let's just add up these blessings. We saw in verse 9 that he restores his father's land and inheritance. He went from absolutely nothing, dependent on another family, to now restored Saul's great wealth. That would have been Jonathan's. That would have been Mephibosheth's. And what good is great land if you can't take care of it? What, great is great, what good is great wealth if you can't, if you can't take care of it? But, and so he, in verse 10, ensures for his provision. He gives Mephibosheth, Zabah, Saul's main servant, 
his number one guy and his 15 sons and his 20 servants. So Mephibosheth went from living in Nowheresville with a family dependent on them, lame, to now having Saul's great wealth and 36 people as his servants, his house team. David basically adopts Mephibosheth as his own, and he communes with him. Don't miss that. The whole thing of eating at the king's table and eating like one of the king's sons has fellowship, relationship written all over it. Communion, enjoyment, togetherness. All this was far beyond what David covenanted with Jonathan and Basal. Jonathan and Saul asked David, don't kill our line. Don't wipe us out. Will you do that for us? We know it's the norm. So we know we're asking for something big here. We know no one's ever done this in the history of kings. Would you just not wipe us out? And David five times said, I will not, I will not, I will not. Yes, I swear. Yes, he made an oath. Yes, he covenanted. He went far beyond those covenants, though, giving the land of Saul to Mephibosheth, ensuring for his provision, adopting him as his own son, communing with him always. And then in case you forgot what kept getting repeated, here it is at the end, the last half of the verse, verse 13, which I didn't read. In case you forgot, the chapter ends by reminding us he was lame in both his feet. So two parallel extremes. One is Mephibosheth's total inability and unworthiness and threatened danger. The other being David's extravagant mercy, totally undeserved, apart from covenant mercy and even over and above covenant agreement. By the way, there was a prayer a long time ago in this story that foreshadowed some of this. You know, Yellow Brick Road, all roads lead to the Yellow Brick Road in Oz. Well, in 1 Samuel, all roads lead back to Hannah. So listen to what happened as Hannah prayed in 1 Samuel 2, what she said. She said, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts, has Mephibosheth written all over it. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. So 2 Samuel 9 isn't just a window into the heart of David, amazing as that is. It is also a window into the heart and plan of God. This is God's plan to take the rich and lofty and bring them low and take the poor and needy and lift them up according to his covenant love. Notice the word kindness in 1 Samuel 9. It's repeated, I think, three times. Verse 1, verse 3, verse 7. David keeps saying he wants to show kindness to Mephibosheth. Our English word kindness isn't rich enough for the Hebrew. The Hebrew is chesed, covenant love, covenant mercy, steadfast love. It's the same word that's used all over the Old Testament. For instance, 123 times in the book of Psalms. For God's covenant love to his people. It's not just kindness, it's 
Chesed, covenant, steadfast love. So we can already safely assume, as we look at 2 Samuel 9, that David's chesed love for Mephibosheth is one small window into God's love for his people. Yes, it's a human window. It's a limited window. It's imperfect, yes. It's small compared to God's grand, perfect love. But nevertheless, it is a window into God's amazing covenant love. So no surprise back in verse 3 when David said, I want to show him the chesed of God. I want to show him the kindness, not of David, the kindness of God. I've done this before. Let me do it again. I've, at times, when preaching on God's steadfast love or his covenant love, I've given you a definition for this rich Hebrew word, chesed, as I've pieced it together over the years from various commentaries and uh, Bible dictionaries. Here's what... Here's what I think chesed means when it comes up in the Bible. God's gracious character and exceptional commitment to his people. An attitude of God which arises out of his relationship with his people. It means that he has bound himself to his people. It's not merely an attitude or an emotion, but a deep and enduring commitment to work powerfully on behalf of a needy people with whom he's established a special relationship. It is a promise and assurance of future help and fellowship characterized by permanence, constancy, and reliability. It is the perfect blend of God's love, grace, and compassion rooted in God himself. In short, it is simply who God is. First John says, God is love. As we sing, how deep the Father's love for us. But the Bible doesn't just tell us about God's love in general or doesn't just speak of forgiveness as some bare act of God in his mind and his heart. What I mean is the Bible gets real specific about God's covenant love and how it actually meets sinners. It gets real specific when we come to the New Testament. So now one more thing for us to consider. Another king another covenant, another table. If you still have your Bibles open, would you turn to Luke 22? There we'll see another king, another covenant, another table. Not just another king, but another Davidic king. That's how Matthew began his account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. He says this is the genealogy of the son of Abraham, the son of David. Jesus is another David. He's also another king. In fact, he is the Davidic king. And he, like David before, but so much more, is eager to show kindness to the unworthy. So we read of Jesus calling in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We read of Luke 5, where the Pharisees question Jesus and say, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, those who think they're righteous, but I've come to call those who know there are sinners to repentance. Jesus told the disciples when they were afraid in Luke 12, Fear not, little flock, little defenseless flock, needy flock. Fear not, little flock, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Amazing. Another king, another covenant, and another table. The covenant and table go together. Look at verse 15 of Luke 22, where we read of that table instituted by the Lord at his last earthly meal with the disciples. In verse 15, he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. I desire to eat with you, to be with you, to fellowship with you. Before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Whatever mercy David had shown, extravagant as it was, humanly speaking, David did not have the tools to usher into a new covenant with his own blood to give us mercy and a kingdom that's not of this world. In Jesus, we're talking about far greater sacrifices than anything David gave up, far greater promises than anything David could have made, a far greater covenant than that made with Jonathan or Saul, and far greater privileges for those who are in that new covenant in Jesus' blood through faith for the forgiveness of sins. All totally undeserved. We're all spiritual Mephibosheths. We have nothing to offer. We're utterly helpless. We're spiritually lame. We've been born into the wrong family, the family of Adam, like Mephibosheth was born into the family of Saul. We're on the wrong team. We were born against God. And he died for us. Romans 5 tells us, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. We read that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And so more than that, Paul says, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation, meaning no longer enemies, but now family, now at the table. Mercy shown on account of someone else, grace being unmerited favor, 
acceptance with God, not because of some exchange of goods, because we have something to bring, because he has something that we need, because it's mutually beneficial for the both of us. No, but simply of grace. And therefore, this covenant and these covenant blessings, like sitting so privileged at the table, can't lead in any way to a sense of entitlement or pride or even an outlook of ease. Yeah, it's done. In a sense, yes, oh, we rest in him as we come to the table and we trust nothing of our own doing. But this is an important point because the disciples in Luke 22 didn't get it. Get this, look down. Just after Jesus gave them the Lord's Supper and explained the Lord's Supper, which should have led them to humility and servantry, verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. How does Jesus respond? He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. I, the king, am among you as the one who serves. The privileged covenant mercies cannot lead us to a sense of entitlement or an outlook of ease, but must lead us to humility and servantry like Jesus showed us to be. Romans 15 tells us, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Think of how David welcomed Mephibosheth, undeservingly so. Think of how Christ welcomes you, undeservedly so. How do we relate to each other? We welcome each other, even when it is undeserved. And get this, there's still one more table to come in God's plan. It gets even better than this. So you see in verse 28 of Luke 22, Luke 22, verse 28, Jesus says, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. A kingdom to come. We read about it in Revelation 19. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is what we sing about every close of our Lord's Supper services. Come and dine, the Savior calls. It's staggering to think of heaven's love and communion It's staggering to think that whatever we have now fellowshipping with the Lord at this table, that in heaven it will be a perfect one. It will be a universal one. It will be more of his presence, more of his glory, more of his goodness, more satisfaction and joy than we can ever imagine. More of his mercy shown, more of his mercy known and appreciated in our hearts. More provision given, more protection made. It's amazing what's to come. And it's amazing that it will be forever. Forever. But let's bring it back down to where we are right now. Where we are in God's redemptive plan. Our meal tonight is not the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
unless the Lord comes back. But it's the Lord's Supper. And again, he says, come. The king says, come. Every Lord's Supper is a kind of Mephibosheth David experience. Our problem is not physical deformity or bad or good lineage. Our problem is more severe than Mephibosheth's. It's in our hearts. It's moral and spiritual. We've gone astray from the king of the universe. With our parents and their parents and their parents, we have all joined a movement of rebellion against the only and true king. We've joined that movement by birth and by choice. And hence, to use Mephibosheth's words, we are worse than dead dogs. We've mocked the king in our actions and our hearts. We've disregarded his laws. We've besmirched his name. We've ruined his kingdom. Hear his call, O rebel, O enemy. He calls for you. As you enter into his presence, like Mephibosheth, you bow and you ask, What need do you have of me? Who am I that you would call me? You know that this could be trouble. But he says, do not be afraid. I've called you to myself to do you good and to do you good with all my heart. And yet knowing that the basis of David's goodness to Mephibosheth was Jonathan's love and Jonathan's goodness and David's covenant to Jonathan, we ask the true king, on what basis would you do us good? Our dads weren't good. Our dads didn't have a covenant for their offspring. On what basis would you do us good if we're in far worse shape than Mephibosheth? And if you can't do us good because our dads were good or because there was a covenant long ago, how can you do us good? And his answer is that he sacrificed his own son. His son Jesus took on flesh and took the punishment that we deserve. He lived the righteousness of God on our behalf. And God will only do us good because of his son, who wasn't just a friend like Jonathan was to David, but he himself was the sacrifice. He himself was the embodiment of the covenant. So Jesus, having died in our place, and having been raised for our justification welcomes us to his table of fellowship and abundance once again on account of himself. That's what the symbols teach us, not on account of our own worth or righteousness. If your hope rests in Christ alone, if you once again feel yourself say to the Lord, who am I? What would you have with me? I'm only a dead dog apart from your grace. Then this table is set for you once again. The meal here is not lavished. We're not home yet. One day we will have that lavished banquet at the king's table. This meal is one of remembrance. 
remembering what Jesus did and what it means for us. It's a, a pilgrim's meal, a token of his love, a symbol of his saving purposes and his presence with us. But again, every Lord's Supper is a Mephibosheth experience. We have no reason for him to show us mercy. And yet he says, come, do not be afraid. I purpose to do you good and for you to eat at my table forever. Hopefully we again see our unworthiness, even feel it in our bones, but once again feel the power of his persistent love and the glory of his invitation to dine and to do us good. May we tonight repent that we don't think about this nearly enough. May we repent that we at times wonder whether he loves us or whether he'll do us good. May we repent that we've ever been afraid of him in any wrong way. May we simply enjoy his presence as that of our Father and our King.